0: Let me get started by telling you guys a, a little story here. In 1844, in Massachusetts, tens of thousands of people gathered because they thought the world was going to end. And let me just show you a picture of this here, okay? You know, there were followers of William Miller, a Baptist preacher, who claimed to know the date when Jesus would return. These believers were called Millerites. And the verse that helped William Miller determine Christ's return was from our very chapter today in Daniel chapter 8, where it says in verse 14, And he said to me, For 2300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. William Miller read that verse and took the number 2300 to mean a literal 2300 years. So all he had to do was figure out the start date, then he would know when Jesus would return. So he determined that it was 457 BC when the temple in Jerusalem was rebuilt by the Persian Empire. That would be the start date, which meant that Jesus would return in 1844. So William Miller writes a book about this in the 1830s. He goes on this huge preaching circuit, and he amasses tens of thousands of followers, many of them selling their possessions, selling their land, quitting their jobs they didn't they didn't tend to their farms some of them weren't even burying their dead because what's the point they're just going to get right back up with christ right so what's the point so on october 22nd 1944 thousands of millerites waited for jesus to take his faithful followers to heaven and he waited and waited and waited It became clear that Jesus was not returning. This became known in American and Western church history as the Great Disappointment. And interesting to note here that for those who refused to admit that this was wrong, eventually started a church called the Seventh Adventist Church. Now, Miller and his followers could have avoided the great disappointment if they just listened to Jesus. Matthew twenty-four. Jesus says this, but about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Jesus made it very clear. God. Has chosen not to reveal the day or time or the end, it will be like a thief in the light in, in the night. So stop trying to figure out the date here. God didn't give it to us. However, even though the Millerites misapplied scripture, you have to give them some credit here. They lived with confident expectation of Christ's return. Their lives evidenced what they believed. They sold everything, they quit their jobs, they were evangelizing to everyone because they believed that Jesus was coming soon and we too can learn from their example because God calls us to live with the end in mind. Did you know that 25% of the Bible is prophecy? That God has given us the book of Revelation, the minor and major prophets like Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah. God has given prophecies to Daniel. Why? It's so that the people of God can see what God is up to and respond in faith today. Now, something that you don't see here in the English translation of Daniel Daniel chapter 8, is that Daniel has shifted from Aramaic, the language of the Chaldeans and Babylonians, which is most of chapters 2 and 6, and he switches to Hebrew, the language of the Jewish people in chapters 7 to 12, which is almost all prophetic, apocalyptic literature. And the reason he switches to Hebrew is because these prophecies are for God's people and not the Babylonians. God has given the people of God a glimpse of what is be. To come so that we can live faithfully in the present. This is kind of like when I was a kid. My mom, in order to get me to straighten up, would just say, hey, every night, just so you know, dad's going to be home soon. And I looked at the clock and I'm like, oh no, he's almost home. So i clean my room, toss out the trash, sweep the floor. Because why? My dad was coming home soon. God gives us prophetic literature to help us live in the present. You know, the challenge for us today in chapter 8 is not understanding the prophecy. It's actually I'm pretty straightforward. It's going to echo back to what we heard last week. The challenge is will we accept it? Will we accept it? You know, the vision that Daniel receives today is one where the people of God will will experience immense suffering and death. It says in verse 27, after he's heard everything, Daniel was appalled by the vision. He didn't like what God showed him. It wasn't a picture of flowers and rainbows. He saw the saints of God being trampled on, yet Daniel never lost faith in his God. When Daniel receives this vision, look at verse 1 here. It says in verse 1, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. Okay? So we know that this is during the reign of Belshazzar. So chronologically, we're moving backwards in this book. That Daniel receives this vision before the Persians conquer Babylon, chapter 5. And before he's thrown in the lines then in chapter 6 so we know through Daniel's example that this appalling vision didn't weaken Daniel's faith but God used it to strengthen him to work hard to pray and to face the lions even though Daniel wanted different circumstances he did not want a different god friends for many of us our lives are not filled with flowers and rainbows rainbows you know we're not happy with the circumstances that are before us But God today wants to give you a glimpse of what he is doing in the future so that you would be strengthened in your present to trust him. So with that, let's go ahead and break down Daniel's vision here. And as you guys look at chapter 8 here, you guys are going to notice that the top half of chapter 8 is the prophecy, and the bottom, bottom half is the interpretation of that prophecy. So instead of reading the verses in order, I think what's going to be more helpful here is for us to group the prophecy and that interpretation together so that it's easier to understand. And then after we work through the prophecies, we'll see how Daniel responded to it, and thus how we should respond to it. So let's, let's get into this. Verse 2. Verse 2 starts off the vision like this. And I saw a vision, and when I saw Daniel speaking here, I was in Susa, the citadel, in the province of Elam, and I saw the vision, and I was in the Ulai Canal, okay? So Daniel is currently in Babylon, but the vision, when he gets it, puts him in the capital of the Persian Empire, Susa. Why? It's because the Persian Empire will conquer Babylon in the near future. Verse three, I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing at the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. Verse five. As I was considering, behold, a male goat from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing at the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram. And broke his two horns, and the ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Okay, what's going on here? Right? There's a ram and goat. There's horns. What's what's happening here? Daniel has no clue. Thank God for that. Right? Feels good. He calls out for help, and get this: God sends the angel Gabriel. Okay, to answer for him. Verse fifteen. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, and obviously this is all the vision, I sought to understand it, and behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man, and I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand division okay I love this God wants to be known he's not playing hide and go seek he wants us to know his word and he will always send help if we want it with Daniel he sends Gabriel and with us God gives us the Holy Spirit now a lot of what we're going to read here will echo the events of chapter 7 but now we have a clearer imagery of what's being used to describe these world events and let me just show you a picture of what I think is going on here with the verses, okay? So first, you have a ram with two horns, and one horn is higher than the other, and then you have a goat with a single horn, and this goat is coming so fast that it doesn't even seem to be touching the ground, okay? What is this? The angel Gabriel explains, verses 20 and 21 as for the ram that you saw with the two horns these are the kings of media and persia verse 21 and the goat is the king of greece and the great horn between his eyes is the first king so the horns represents kings and empires the ram with two horns two horns is the medo persian empire and this empire was a coalition of the medes and persians but eventually the persian empire will eclipse the medes this is why One horn is bigger than the other. Then in verse four, it says that this ram was pushing westward, northward, and southward, and that's exactly what the Medo-Persian Empire did in taking over Babylon. It went west, north, and south, okay? So this is the ram. But then this goat with one horn comes in and kills it. The goat with the one horn is Alexander the Great, who became king at 20 years old. And 18 months later, he goes to war with Persia and defeats them. By the time Alexander the Great is 26 years old, he has conquered most of the known world. What did you do when you were 26? Okay, that's what he did when he was 26. This is why the goat was moving so So fast because it represented the speed of his conquest. Verse 8. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. When Alexander the Great was still at the height of his power, the empire was 1.5 million people. At 32 years old, he dies by malaria. So the great horn is broken. And in verse 8. And instead of it there came a four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. Okay, so, this, the, so the goat now loses this big horn and then four other horns come out of it, okay? It's a, it's, a, it's a weird thing, okay? It's just crazy. Gabriel explains what this is, verse 22. As for the horn that was broken in the place of the four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from this nation, but not with his power, okay? So after Alexander the Great, dies his empire is divided into four smaller kingdoms led by his four generals let me just show you what this gnarly picture might have looked like here okay so you have it broken down in greece asia minor syria and israel and also egypt so these four kingdoms arise from this one empire but they will never be as strong as alexander the great Verse 9, and this is very important because I actually think that this is actually the key for the the book of chapter 8 here. This person's talked about, out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. So out of these four horns of Greece, a ruthless small horn will arise. And around 175 BC, a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes arose from the Secuclid Empire. And you see his name there, right? Verse 9 says his conquest was towards the south and east and the glorious land. The glorious land was the promised land. It was Jerusalem. Verse 10 This little horn grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on these stars. Antiochus, in his conquest of Jerusalem, murdered 80,000 Jews. Men, women, kids, and babies. It is crazy. These were the stars that were trampled on. When God made a covenant to Abraham, he said, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars. Verse 11. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of the of his sanctuary was overthrown. Antiochus goes into the temple of God, sets up a statue of Zeus in the holiest of place, and he makes the Jews worship him and eat pig meat right in front of him, which is unclean to the Jews, and he sacrifices a pig on the altar." In the most holy of places, he desecrates it. Verse 12, and a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of the transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Antiochus made it a capital offense to have a copy of scripture. He literally threw the scripture of God, the word of God on the street, and he commanded people to step on it. Antiochus hated God and his people. He made it a capital offense to celebrate Passover or any Jewish feast. He made it a capital offense to circumcise children that he would literally send soldiers into homes with babies to see if they were circumcised and if they were, the mom and babies would be killed on the spot. Antiochus also issued coins with his image that read this, King Antiochus God in the flesh. Let me just show you this here. So you see a coin of Antiochus here. Now Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes is not his last name, but a self-proclaimed title, which means, I am God in the flesh. That's Epiphanes. That's what it means. He said that about himself. Antiochus destroyed the Bible he desecrated the temple he defamed God he brought death to believers and he exalted himself scripture calls this moment in Jewish history the abomination of desolation what he did was so horrible that it desolated the temple the Jews scattered and didn't return to worship but but the Jews fought back Verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression to make things desolate, and giving over the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? The question here is how long is this desecration going to last? This is crazy. Verse 14. And he said to me, For 2300 evenings and mornings then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. So for the Millerites, they thought that this meant 2,300 years, but having the luxury of history on our side, we know that the 2,300 evenings and mornings meant days, not years, because a Jewish man by the name of Judas Maccabeus led a revolt against Antiochus, and this little small Jewish army would be known as the Maccabees revolt and they pushed back Antiochus and his empire and recaptured the temple and rededicated. And the length of time from the desecration of the temple when the statue of Zeus was put up was September 6th, 171 BC, and the temple when it was rededicated was December 25th, 164 BC, which is... 2,300 days, as God said it would be. This day in Jewish history would be called the Feast of Dedication, or as some of us might know it, Hanukkah. Hanukkah here. So this is the prophecy, and let me just read quickly for you the interpretation that we just covered from the angel Gabriel. This is what angel Gabriel says, verse 23 to 25. He says this concerning Antiochus. And at the later end of their kingdom, when the transgressions have reached their limit, a king of bold face who understands riddles shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. I think that means demonic power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make the seed prosper under his hand and in his own mind, he shall become great. Antiochus Epiphanes, God in the flesh. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. He will go against God, his temple, and his people. And he shall be broken, but not by human hand." After Antiochus is defeated in the Maccabean Revolt, shortly thereafter, he develops a stomach disease, goes insane, and dies. So, as it's been said here, he would not die by human hand, but by the finger of God. Now, before we move to our application here... There is one important thing that I want you to note here. That most biblical scholars believe that what we have here in chapter 8 is what we would call a double fulfillment. A double fulfillment that you have a near fulfillment of prophecy and also a future ultimate fulfillment of prophecy. That in the case here, the little horn in chapter 8 is Antiochus Epiphanes. He is a foreshadow of the ultimate little horn that we read about in chapter 7 who is the Antichrist. That just like Antiochus, the Antichrist will be a persecutor of God's people. He will desecrate the temple. He will trample on God's word. He will claim to be God. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 24. Let me show it to you. Jesus says this. So when you see the abomination of desolation, Spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, for then there will be great tribulation. Jesus understands Daniel chapter 8 to point to the ultimate desolation and to the ultimate tribulation which will be brought on by the Antichrist. So Antiochus Epiphanes illustrates to us the ultimate the ultimate Antichrist and, and, and who he will be. And it also and he also illustrates the spirit of Antichrist that influences us today. Let me show you first John chapter 2. Just so just keep with me here, okay? First John chapter 2 says this children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Hour okay, so every day as we get closer and closer to the return of Christ, it's not just going to be Antiochus Epiphanes, but there will also be many who take on the spirit of the Antichrist. There will always be a Nebuchadnezzar, always be a Darius, always be an Antichrist Epiphanes. Wherever there is resistance to God's word, that is the spirit of Antichrist that is working. So if you can follow me here, the prophecy of Daniel chapter 8 is both behind us, but it's also before us. Antiochus is a near fulfillment, but it's also a picture of Antichrist and the future ultimate fulfillment of of this little horn, okay? So there we go. We did it, okay? We did it. So now for the rest of you, you're sitting here and saying, So what? Okay, what's going on here? How does knowing this prophecy impact our present? Uh, Let me show you how Daniel responded, okay? Here are three applications, okay, for the practical folks in the room here. This is what we see from Daniel. First is this, he was sorrowful. Second, he was faithful, and third, He was watchful. So after receiving this vision, this is how he responds and how we should too. So first, he was sorrowful. Look at verse 27. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. It says here that he was appalled by this vision, that when he saw the temple desecrated, God's word being trampled on, the people of God being killed, his stomach was just sick. All all Daniel could see was just suffering of his people, and it was continual suffering. it wouldn't stop in Babylon. It will continue in Persia. It will continue in Greece. His people will continue to be enslaved, and, his, and the enemies of God will continue to prosper. But here's the thing. What Daniel was seeing would be hundreds of years after him. He would never personally be impacted by Antiochus. Yet, when he sees what happens to the people of God, he is devastated. Daniel, with all his heart and life, was connected to the people of God and his kingdom. How does this relate to us? Are our hearts connected to the people of God and his kingdom? Are our hearts connected to the advancement of the gospel? Do we celebrate and rejoice in gospel movements and thriving churches? And do we grieve over the closing of churches? You know, these past two years have been really tough. There have been numerous churches in our city that have closed for all sorts of reasons because of moral failure, some others because of difficulty of sustainability with people and finances. And we've seen this with small churches and also big churches. That we have pastors who who pastor thousands of people and they're being exposed for their abuse of power, mismanagement of finances. This is heartbreaking and saddening because we don't need less gospel churches. We need more gospel churches. To see churches struggle and to see pastors burn out and to see people lose trust in God, this is not something that should make our hearts rejoice. This, we should not delight in gossiping about it. It's, something, it's not something that we can just say, well, like, you know, that's their problem. That, that, that's not my problem. No, all of us are connected together. All of us together give a picture of the kingdom of God. If one part of the body hurts, all of it hurts. Do we feel the loss of God's work and God's people like we feel our own sense of loss? Is our life bound up with the cause and advancement of the gospel? When you hear about our global workers overseas, do we celebrate them, and do we also grieve with them when they suffer? Do we feel the persecution our missionaries are facing all across the world for the sake of Christ? Do we pray for them? Do we give to them because our hearts are so connected to the gospel? And when we read Daniel chapter 8, we are warned that the hour is drawing near. How does that make us feel? How do we feel knowing that every person around us will pass away and they will be judged before Christ? How do we feel knowing that the road to a Christ-like eternity is wide, but the gates of heaven are narrow? Are our hearts complacent and indifferent? Or do we sense an urgency to tell others about Jesus? Daniel was not apathetic to what God was doing. He wasn't like, this is 100 years away, you know, tough for them. I don't really care. No. His life was physically and emotionally bound up to the kingdom of God and its people. Here's the second application. The second way Daniel responded is that he stayed faithful in his work. Check this out. Verse 27. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days... Then I rose and went about the king's business. Okay, so Daniel was sick by this vision for days. And then he goes back to work, okay? What? What? You know, if I was Daniel, I would just quit. What's the point? God's going to bring an end to Babylon soon, and then to Persia, and then it's suffering on top of suffering. You know, what's the point? I'm just going to stay in bed and just stay under the covers all night, right? But we see here, Daniel goes to work. What does Daniel's example teach us? Even though it can be easy to be discouraged, Stay faithful to the things that God has called you to. Stay faithful to those things. You know, we can look at our chaotic world, the war in Ukraine, the war in our homes, the state of our country and city, the division in our churches, and it's so easy to be discouraged. But we should not hide, nor should we distance ourselves. Instead, we get up and faithfully do what God has called us to do. This means we turn on the laptop and we work on that spreadsheet. We write that paper. We type in that computer code. We go to the job site and we work with our hands. We go to the classroom and stand on our feet for eight hours a day. We pack up our kids' lunches and send them to school. We continue to be faithful to what God has called us to because it's in our faithfulness we show that we trust God's plan, and it's in our faithfulness we minister to where God wants us to be in these last days. You know, a few years ago, there was blood in my urine, okay? Now, I know that's kind of TMI, too much information. Um, And let me just say, going to Google is a bad idea, okay? Okay? Because the word that keeps popping up is bladder cancer over and over again. Now, I praise God that after a ton of scans and poking, it wasn't cancer, but it was dehydration and exhaustion. But in those weeks when I didn't know what was going on, I'm not going to lie to you, I was discouraged. You know, I wanted to quit. Does my work, does my, does my life, does any of this really matter? I'm about to go anyway. What's, what's the big deal? But God in his kindness in this season, brought a conviction to my heart that, yes, what I do matters. In fact, feeling the brevity of life gave me a firmer resolve than ever before in my calling in helping others to see and to love Jesus. It was through that I actually doubled down on my commitment to Christ. Now, God is not calling many of you to be a pastor. He might. He might not be calling you to be a missionary, but he might. But whatever way, in whatever shape or form that God has called you to do his kingdom work, be faithful to him. Glorify him, make him known wherever he has placed you. Finally, Daniel was watchful. Now, how does this vision of a ram and a goat and horns on top of horns on top of horns help us to live in the present? How did it help Daniel? It was so that he wouldn't be surprised by it. And know that when things got hard and chaotic and when the army was coming in, he could still trust God and endure in his faith. Jesus said this to his disciples after telling them that those who persecuted me will persecute you. He says this in John 16. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away, that they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Jesus is saying, is I'm telling you what is going to happen so that you don't fall away from the faith. I want you to endure. Don't quit. Stay watchful. Know the signs and the challenges that are coming. And in our lifetime, and maybe even in our kids' lifetime, we might not experience the level of persecution that Antiochus Epiphanes brought upon the Jews. But if we follow Christ faithfully, it will be hard. It will be costly, and there will be spiritual attacks. And at the first sign of hardship, when that moment comes, don't run away. Don't compromise. Endure and stay faithful to Christ. Be watchful and be, and be aware of Satan's tactics. Know that what Satan did back then, he seeks to do today. That he attacks us and he wants, to, he wants to break down every confidence that we have in the cross. He wants to attack the church and the people of God. He wants to destroy our worship and obedience. He wants to cast God's truth down to the ground and have us doubt it and mock it. Be watchful be watchful, don't fall away. Getting a glimpse of what God is up to, it may not keep us from pain, but it should keep us from panic. Because even though the prophecy tells of trials and of greater tribulations, it also tells us there is a limit. There's a limit to it. For example, in verse 14, there will be 2,300 days of suffering, then the sanctuary shall be restored. Now, in one sense, this 2,300 days is a very long time, but yet it is limited. It doesn't go on forever. God has numbered the days of suffering, and he will ultimately crush it, and this is our hope. In those moments of suffering where it might look like God is losing and Satan is winning, but ultimately, we need to know that God rules the future, and Jesus is coming. As much as these terrible visions bothered Daniel, he was still comforted to know that it was God who was revealing it to him, thus God. God is in control he controls kings and kingdoms and one day Jesus will come and put an end to Satan and suffering once and for all so church be watchful be watchful for Satan's attacks but also be watchful because your Savior is coming what we cannot stop Jesus can Evil does not have the final word. Restoration is not impossible. Renewal is the future. Psalm 30 Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Knowing this gives us confidence to endure and trust in him. Daniel says in verse 25 that this little horn will be broken and not by human hands. Antiochus with a stomach virus is killed. What mighty armies could not do, God accomplished with a stomach flu. And for Satan, he too will be defeated, but he will not be defeated by human hands. He will be defeated by the hand of God when he raises Jesus from the grave. Satan's power is over because the tomb is empty. Today is Palm Sunday. Today, Jesus goes into the city of Jerusalem. Why? To wage war with Satan. His power is over. Do you see? The gospel is mightier than any horn. The Babylonian Empire? Gone. The Persian Empire? Gone. The Greek Empire? gone. Alexander the Great, gone. Not so great. Antiochus Epiphanes, gone. The Roman Empire, gone. Wait, but what about the church? What about the word of God? What about the people of God? We're still here and growing. Amen? Church, our confidence in what God will do is not based on wishful thinking. It is based on the firm assurance of his word. No one could know what Daniel 8 reveals except for the God who knows all and rules all. And our assurance is not based on a dead Savior, but a risen Savior. The God who triumphed in Christ will triumph over all little horns. Amen. Amen. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father God, we thank you that God, as today is Palm Sunday, and this coming weekend will be Good Friday and Easter, that God, that we are on the cusp of the one moment that changes history on its head, the one moment where, Father, you step in through your son, Jesus Christ, to say enough is enough. No more sin, no more brokenness, no more guilt. But that, Father, you're sending your son to take those things upon us, to pay our debt in full, to put on our filthy rags, and to put on the robe of righteousness. Father, this is our future. This is our hope. And God, until that moment happens, God, we know, we know that Satan will delight in nothing more than to attack the confidence of our faith in you, to make us doubt your word, to make us step away from the people of God. Father, would you give us a firm resolve? God, would you give us assurance, Lord, Lord, to continue to endure in the hardest of moments so that we can show that our God is absolutely faithful and he is trustworthy. God, we can't do this on our own. And Father, we do this all for the glory of your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.